Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. Got a special guest on today, Peter Churchporn, who's the director of the NRA Hunter Leadership Forum. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time and, and talk about later on in the podcast exactly what the Hunters Leadership Forum does for the NRA and, and Peter's role in that. Peter, how are you doing today? I am awesome. Thanks for having me. Yep, no problem. Thanks for, thanks for joining. So I've known Peter now for a, a few years um, with the work that I do through the NRA, and, and it was one of those we briefly met, and then you find out more and more about a, about a person, and I went on the journey of uh, doing the waterfall in North America. And then, then I find out that Peter worked at Ducks Unlimited before he came to the NRA. So we have, we have a lot more in common than, than uh, what I thought the first time, first time we met. So it's been a, been a great relationship as, as that's grown. Um, Peter, I guess before you got to the NRA, just explain how, how you got into the outdoor industry and, and everywhere you've gone in life in the outdoor industry to land right here. Sure. No problem. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a household. My father was a police officer and my mother was a travel agent. And when my mother was in college, she was a recreation major. So growing up, we did nothing but outdoor activities. Our vacations were camping. Um, my father got me into hunting. It's the normal path of most hunters in North America, where I came from a family of, of hunters hunting since I can remember. My dad always had me out um, in Lexington, Virginia. We had a farm we could hunt and we used to go out there for our for our adventures. And just generally in the outdoors, I or a hiker, a, I love to kayak, I love to mountain bike, um, rock climb. Um, and then that all, a lot of that comes from my mom. My mom, she's 81 years old and she is a uh, she is uh, 80 going on 60, um, just wants anything outside all the time. So I get my adventure spirit from her. 
And she introduced me to the outdoors with piles of camping across the United States. We used to we used to drive our summers. My dad would take off work and my mom would take off work and we'd spend two months on the road just camping at all the national parks out to see her brother in California and then turn around on the way back. We we drove a VW station wagon with no air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So when did your when did your dad get you into hunting? At what age? You know, I probably, I, I probably around seven years old is when I first probably was going out with him. I wasn't carrying a firearm at that, that time. I was just tagging along, but I remember I, I still have a picture of it uh, off of a Polaroid. Uh, I was 10 years old and I shot my first squirrel. All right. That's, that's great. You, that's uh, one of the questions I ask everybody that's on the podcast is, is if you're into the hunting industry at what age and, and how did you get in, into the industry? And about 99% of the people say it to you, their father or grandpa that got them, got them going into that's, the outdoors at a young age. Yep. That's the path in this country. And if you're not, you know, later we'll talk about some of the research that the NRA has done and some of the things that the in industry is into with R3. But if you don't grow up in a family of hunters, the likelihood of you hunting is very small. Yep. Yep. Just it's, it's that tough first step to get going. And, it, and I think even for people in their 20s and 30s, if they look at hunting, they just don't know what they don't know. And it seems like a lot to get going if nobody's there to help you. You bet. Yeah, it is that first step and entrance and in, in, into the outdoors is a is a tough one. So I'm sure you've had the opportunity to travel and and hunt all over. What's been what's been one of your uh, your top memories in the in the field? You know, I, I um I have been very fortunate when I my years I worked for Ducks Unlimited for 17 years, and in that time frame I lived in a lot of different places in Florida. I live in Colorado. I live in Seattle. And I lived in just outside of Portland, Oregon for eight years and then growing up in Virginia. So I've been very fortunate. I have hunted in 44 states in oh, wow. the United States, Canada, Mexico, uh, South America. So I've been very fortunate in, in, in spending time outside and hunting. And I've had so many awesome opportunities and great memories of chasing chuckers outside of Winnemucca, Nevada to self self-guided um freelance hunting in canada i did that for seven years while i lived out in the pacific northwest some unbelievable adventures working in alaska um i you know there's there's so many but i, I think now for me it's about taking new people i i enjoy that just as much as the harvest of the animal mm. or going out so I will have to say I had a I had one of my dogs, his name was Ranger, and this was probably six years ago. And one of my daughters was just coming into hunting. Her name was Rachel. And we went out and waterfowl hunted one morning. And I had a beautiful set of newly carved uh, cork decoys that a friend of mine made for me. And she shot her first Drake, well, shot her first duck, which was a Drake Mallard, and then ranger retrieved that duck and it was his first duck to retrieve oh, he was still awesome. so yeah that's a cool memory i she was she loved it um I, I gave her a couple of those decoys um and she still has them today and keeps them on her on her on her desk at school but yeah that that's probably one of the best memories of the recent time is taking rachel out for her first duck oh that's awesome so when you when you 
I, I assume went to college and then was Ducks Unlimited your first job after college? It, it wasn't actually. I my major. I started off as a recreation major, um, and then found that that wasn't going to. So was I, a, I didn't want to do that. Is so a I recreation a, manager a gym teacher? Right. No. I my goal was to be a. Um, to be a uh, park ranger. Okay. Okay. To work in the National Park Service of, of some way like that. And then as I investigated it, that's not the route I wanted to take. My father was a police officer. So I switched over to the administration of justice. So that was what my uh, major was in with psychology and sociology minors. And when I got out of school in 19, uh, got out of college in 92, we were in the middle of a recession and there was no opportunity to be employed as a police officer. It just, they weren't hiring. Um, it was going to be years before they, I was moved back into the system to be able to be hired. Hmm. So I started to temp and I got a job with a company that did, they hired me as a, it was a, a contractor for a medical, uh, uh, company within the east coast they did a bunch of stuff in hospitals contract coding we did uh medical records uh optical disking uh communication destruction and the the owner of the company was a large company and i hit it off and he hired me um as like a manager of contracts so i roamed from hartford connecticut all the way down to north carolina working in these hospitals doing kind of like um uh uh, efficiency consulting, but also managing the employees we had in the hospitals. And he was very um, uh, nice to me and allowed me to volunteer with Ducks Unlimited. I was a super duper volunteer at that time where I worked at the committee level and the state level of Ducks Unlimited. So I spent probably more time volunteering than I did working. But my boss at the time was very nice. And he, as long as I got my job done, he didn't care what I did. Okay. So that passion turned into a job with Ducks Unlimited. And my first job was with them in 1997. I took the job as the regional director in Florida. All right. And then I was, I was there for um, 17 years working in various positions around the United States. My wife and I didn't have any children, so we took whatever next opportunity there was and moved. And with that allowed us to see a lot of the com uh, lot of the country. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So when, during that 17 years, I know you listed off, it'd be five or six different, different towns you lived in through there. And it was being a regional director or moving, moving up somewhere that required yep. you to move to a different location. You got, yeah, yeah. In Florida and in Colorado, I was a regional director. And then when I moved out to the West Coast, my title was director of fundraising and volunteer relations. So my job was to manage all the fundraising staff on the grassroots level in the states of Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was really great because for 10 years, that was my region. And I would have to interact with our senior volunteers and our staff on a monthly basis, which gave me an opportunity to really see some awesome parts of our country because not all that was flying. I would say probably 60% of that, 70% of that travel was by vehicle. So I would hit the road about every two months for almost three weeks and make a loop through the region, seeing everybody, which afforded me some recreational opportunities um, and some hunting opportunities along with some work. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. So I know you said you you'd waterfall hunted in Cold Bay, Alaska, right? I have yeah. several times. Yeah, that's where I was. So I, I stopped out and Cold Bay is where I started off the North American Waterfall Slam. And I remember you reached out right after that to to talk about had you'd been hunting there. And it's one of those yep. things that there there are a few waterfall hunters that go to Cold Bay every year, but again, it's a pretty it's a pretty limited group just because of what it takes to get there. What years did you hunt there? That had to have been uh, probably around 2004, five, and six. I think I hunted there three times, um, right, right around four, five, and six. Yeah. Okay. The Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge. Yep. Uh, yep. That is I it. had, a, we had, we actually, Dutch Unlimited, I, I think Cold Bay at the time when I was going there had 56 people, full time residents of the town. And the chairman of our DU chapter at the time uh, had, I don't think three or five of the children in the school there. And they hosted a deer banquet in that town that had 200 people at it. Um, <laughs> everyone, people who came into town would be, because there's at that time, I don't think there was a hotel there. You had to room at someone's house uh-huh. and no restaurants. So people had to cook the food at their homes and bring it to the school. And we had the, we had the event at the gymnasium. Um, it was truly a community effort. Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. They, they still, um, don't have a hotel or anything there. When I, when I went there, I stayed at the outfitter who has a house there. Um, you stay at, stay at his house. I remember there isn't, there's not really a grocery store. They sell groceries and things like that out of, there's a person that has a house that they open up for like two or three hours a day that you can buy very limited stuff, but every, everything else is just boated in. It truly, yeah. It's a cool, it's a cool little place. And again, anybody that doesn't know, there's a giant runway there, um, just because of the military use that that had happened in that area. So it's all of a sudden this giant runway that you see in the middle of nowhere in this small town, and the waterfall hunting is is amazing. I, I think that was an alternate landing spot for the shuttle when we were launching the shuttle because the runway was so big. Ah. I think it might even been expanded for that use because. That was, you know, if they got in trouble over a certain part of the country and they had the ditch, that would have been one of the places the shuttle could have landed. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, you're right, because most of the things that fly into there is a little prop plane and you could land it on a postage stamp and yet you land on this runway that you could, you know, it's humongous I amounts think, of concrete. I think it's 10,000 feet long. It's just, it's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. So of all the places that you, you were able to visit in, in waterfall, obviously is, is waterfall hunting your number, your number one, if, if you get a chance, is, is that it? Absolutely. Not even, not even a close second? Not even a close second. Okay. No. Nope. So of nope. all, all maybe, the- you know, chasing a turkey is, is maybe 70% of what I would, it would rank up 70% of a duck being a hundred percent, but the ducks win. So of all the places that you've been able to waterfall hunt, where's, where's your favorite? Where's the one that you were like, this is truly amazing because of this. God, I'm going to give, I'm going to give some secret spots away. Some people well, you don't need gonna... to, yeah, you don't need to get too secret on here. <laughs> no, right? no, Everybody... I'm not, I'm not. I tell you what, I, I, I you know, some of the places in Alaska were incredible just because of the scenery. There was one place that we hunted outside of, of Valdez where we were, uh, icebergs were floating by while we were hunting ducks, which was oh. just a really cool thing. And, and whales are, are breaching in the distance while we were hunting ducks, but probably some of the, 
best hunts just because it was more replicatable for the everyday me when I lived in Colorado was Colorado. And people don't think of Colorado as a waterfowl hunting destination, but there is a, some places on the Platte River up in the northeast corner and then in a little town called Alamosa and Monta Vista that uh, Alamosa and Monta Vista at one time hosted the highest duck nest dense ratio in North America, more than the Prairie Coteau. They raise a lot of ducks there. And it was really good hunting right before the freeze up because you had 330 days of blue sky. Um, and the, it was just phenomenally great weather. And you could see the birds um, in, in Alamosa and Monta Vista. You could identify bands on the lake. It was just so shiny. And the way the you sat up against the levees, you could actually, and they banded a lot of ducks there. And then in the Julesburg area of Colorado, you're right on the edge of the rainwater basin. So you're getting you know, 70% of the North American mallard population funneling through the rainwater basin. And again, it's blue sky days. Um, it's an easy hunt. You wade into the Platte River and it was just wave after waves of mallards in blue sky day. It was wonderful. Oh, that sounds, that sounds cool. So do you have anywhere on the waterfall list that you, that you still want to go that you haven't gone oh, yet? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I haven't been out to uh, was it Saint George? Is that Saint Paul that, Island in Alaska? Saint Paul, yeah, yep. Saint Paul. I all the time that I was out there in Alaska, I was up there so many times for ten years, and I never made it out to Saint Paul. I'd love to do that because I have not shot a king eider yet. I need that bird. Um, you know, I, I I've been fortunate enough to go down to South America. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I'd love to make it out to. The St. Paul would be great. There's, there is no shortage of birds down in South America. I just did that for the first time, first time this year, and uh, I was blown away. There's a lot of, a lot of shooting so, going on down there. So fun, yeah, so, so fun. fun. The so, what are you? I assume you're tracking. What other species of waterfall do you need for the to get them all in North America? I need the king eider. That's it. That's that's the last that's one it. left. Well, technically the king eider, but you know they just opened up the Aleutian goose. Um, if you can, if you're fortunate enough to pull a permit, yep. I, when I, the last I looked in it, I think they were given a hundred permits away to the world. Um, and 50% of those or something was going to Alaska residents. So technically that is a legal waterfowl species I have not harvested. So there's two on the list right now. The chances of me getting one of those permits are, are small, but it would be the king eider. Yeah, and I, I think you'd be shocked at how many people, because I, I put in, I put in for that one as well. How many people that are waterfallers actually put in for that? So the chances of drawing as a non-resident in Alaska is, are pretty slim. But I have to admit, yeah. out of my whole tags portfolio—that's probably the one that, obviously, besides sheep. But I get pretty excited when the Alaska draw comes out, just on the hope I'll draw one of those non-resident tags to go up there. We saw a ton of them when we hunted out of Cold Bay and also out of Kodiak. Yep. We, we would get, when we were in Cold Bay, we'd get them in our decoys all the time. Yep. Um, I've got pictures on my phone of, of the, you know, whatever you call that tundra out there, if that's Cold Bay, but the tundra or the, the wetland area just full of, of those birds. It yeah. was incredible. Oh, that's pretty cool. Another one you got to check out if you're looking for the king. Um, I, I got my king in Greenland and it is, it, it's un, untouched for sea duck hunting up there compared to the rest of North America, in my mind. Just a lot of yeah, birds. it would probably even be 
it'd be easier for me from living in Virginia to be able to get up there as well. I will have to investigate yeah. that. Yeah. So let's talk um, NRA. For a lot of people, I mean, obviously everybody thinks NRA, they're, you're protecting our Second Amendment rights. It's, it's, it's a very big, but I don't think... I can speak very, very truthfully. I don't think very many people realize what the NRA does for hunters on a day in, day out basis through everything. So I guess let's let's start with um, you're the director of the the Hunters Leadership Forum. Let's let's start there, and we'll we'll cover everything that the NRA truly does to protect hunters' rights. Yes, there's no doubt, and you are right. The NRA, even within our industry, even with people who I work with at fellow NGOs. Um, state fish and game agencies, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and especially hunters, we the, all of the great work that the NRA does for the Second Amendment advocacy um, is often overshadows all the great work that we do for hunting and hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I get it. There's only so many hours in the day that you can talk about the NRA, and we need to talk about what is most important in our social settings right now. And the protection of the Second Amendment is that number one most important thing. So it's I don't get my feelings hurt when I hear that. Yep. But the NRA does do a lot of great things for hunting and and people don't recognize why we do it. So I, I talk about this a lot when I open up a presentation about why the NRA works hard for hunters. It's because that in 1871, when the NRA was started, the founding fathers of the NRA wrote out five principles that will guide the organization or or founding documents. And one of those, I don't know the terminology from my heart, but basically one of the five says that the NRA will work to protect hunting rights and work on hunter safety within the United States. So it's just in our fabric that we have programs and we work for fighting for hunters' rights. Gotcha. That's so you got, and and that's something for everybody that knows. NRA had just didn't start doing this. They've been doing it all along. Um, so what, like, let's talk about some of the past things that the NRA's done, what they're currently doing right now um, for hunters. Sure. Yeah. So probably the biggest thing that we did to start it um, was in 1949, the NRA was the organization to wrote the first hunter safety curriculum, 1949. It came about because the state of New York was uh, looking at making hunters safer. And they said, hey, we need to come up with a with a, a, a certification for people who want to buy a hunting license in the state that they have to they have to take some type of class or test that proves that they're a safer hunter. Well, at that time, the NRA had uh, instructors, around the United States teaching firearm safety. So they came to us, the New York Department of Conservation, and said, hey, do you want to partner in building a hunter safety program? So back in 1949, it wasn't as complicated as it is today. We, you know, we didn't have the tree stand safety and crossbow safety. Um, So it was basically firearm safety but it, that was compounded into um, safety in the field with a firearm, uh, crossing a fence, 
how to take your firearms, unload and load them when you're getting out of a car, um, how to make sure that you are identifying game properly. So we developed that curriculum in 1949. And what you can actually, you can Google that. And there is a, a green booklet that we used to provide to the states that wanted to have a program. And it was that curriculum that was used in this country for exclusively for about 27 years. And then, so, so millions of people learned, got their hunter safety and the NRA actually the card people. When I do these presentations, they'll pull out their wallet and they'll give, show me their card that they got in, you know, 1955. Mm -hmm. and they're very proud of it. Here's my hunter education card. So it was the program was played five years and then in in um there was a change in how Pittman and robertson dollars were funded so prior to this change it was it was taxes on firearms and ammunition well there was a change where they added a tax on bows and arrows and pistols and because of the extra money going into the fund there was a push to allow state agencies to use those funds to build their own hunter education divisions within their agency. And today, that's still how Pittman Robertson is funded. 20, I think it's 25% of the dollars, 20% of the dollars goes to fund hunter education in the state agencies, and the rest of it goes for wildlife resource programs. Um, so once that change happened, there wasn't as much need for our programs because states were moving into tree stand safety and mm -hmm. state game regs, and we didn't have the bandwidth to keep up with it. Um, so that so we got out of the world of hunter safety in the mid '70s. We turned over all of our records to the states where we had people who had been certified, um, and we got out of the business until 2017. Um, so the NRA in 2015, that's when I was, we were looking at trying to do more for the American hunter. We had a, a at one time we had a very robust hunter services department and, and the director at the time of general operations wanted to expand on that. And he and I knew each other for a while. So he recruited me to come over to the NRA and help them expand their uh, operations and their services for the American hunter. So we started to look at online training and we were in the building we were looking at some learning management systems so that we could do some other online training for other divisions and one of the ideas we came up with was why don't we provide an awesome online hunter education course and give it a free we looked at the current options that were available in the world and they were poor 2d animation um for profit hunter education courses online yeah. that that uh, people were having to pay for so we spent two years developing the curriculum filling every portion of hunter education you would think and then we partnered with one of the best structure and we released in 2000 august of 2000 fun friendly and really the only interactive online hunter education course on the planet today um, and we give it away for free. Um, and the and the best part of that is not only do we give it away for free, that the way that the states get their Pittman and Robertson dollars 
is usually based on an in-kind donation of a volunteer hour, which is how the majority of in-person hunter education is taught in the United States. The states can actually use the value of our course, the per-person value that the for-profit vendor would charge, and then they get the match, so they use that as their base, times that amount, times three, that amount's usually about 25, 26 bucks a student, times three, and then they get that money back to do other hunter education programs in their state. It's a great win-win. Ah, so how many states, and, and you know me, this is a big big one for me because I'm a believer that that it's so tough to get into the hunting industry as it is in, in gun safety that f- I'm a big believer that hunter safety should be free to anybody that wants that wants to take the course and try to get into the industry. How many states right now is is that in that the NRA has that program? We are in 12 states right. um, and we are we have funding and the time to have it in all 50, but we just have not been able to um, get the approval. The state agency, the local state agency has to approve our course of certifying their state residents. So we are open and ready for all 50 states, but right now only 12 states have approved it to work on their state. We are what's called IHEA certified, so the International Hunter Education Association who certifies the curriculum, we're completely certified, um, we're ready to go. So we're, if anybody out there is in a state where we're not in your state, we would love to be in your state. And how did it... Um as as you started to do this program, um, have more states come to you? Because, I mean, it seems like a, a no-brainer win-win for the state because you're getting, I mean, obviously you're getting to free for people, but also they're getting money back on the backside from the Pittman-Robertson Act that they can then spend on other programs in their state. Yeah, you would think they'd be lining up to take it. They're there are there are complications in that that we don't have time to go into in this podcast, um, but there are some distractors. Uh, not everyone believes in the NRA's mission all the time. Um, so in some places, it's just purely political that it's those three letters that yep. keep us from going into some states. And and then some places just like what they have and don't want to change. Um, but we're, we're here to help and. You know, the side of the organization that delivers that is non-political. Um, it comes out of the foundation that just completely all we want to do is help create more safer new hunters for the United States. Everyone knows Matthews is the leader in archery innovations, and I'm proud to be part of their team. Little did they know I've been part of their team ever since I started pulling a bow back when I was 12. I personally shoot their new Matthews V3X and love it. So go visit matthewsinc.com and pick out your next bow. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. And this is uh, one for anybody listening. If if you get a couple minutes, I mean, just just take a look at your state and how the hunter safety programs work in your state. Um, it's interesting for for 
people just to, to get a little background on, on how that happens in your state. And if there is a free hunter safety in your state, if there's not, it's just one of those things you can, you can obviously message the people in your state to, to just put a bug in their ear and let them know that, you know, it'd be great if our state signed up for this, this free hunter safety through the NRA versus having to have people pay for it. It's just another, another hurdle to, to get new hunters and so forth and into, uh, into the industry. So that's a, that's a good one. I, and there's some, obviously there's some political stuff ar- around that. The reasons why states want to keep their current programs. Um, sometimes it's not necessarily always best for, for the hunters and so forth. So I know there's only, only so much that Peter can say. I could probably say a little bit more, but I'll hold off in, on here so I don't get them in too much trouble. <laughs> so what, what I know the NRA um, leadership forum did, it did a bunch of research and put it, just put it out. Um, I want to say a couple years ago in effectively communicating. Um, this is a, this is a, a bigger deal than I think a lot of people think on, on, on what it really means. I'm gonna let you dig into this, but before we do just what does effective communication mean for a hunter? Um, again, as you, as you look at hunting rights and how it's viewed, if you, if you split the U S into a, into a population as a hundred percent, okay, say 5% hunt. 5% are extremely strong anti-hunters. So there's really 90% in the middle that could go either way. How we effectively communicate what we do as hunters really plays a big part in how that 90% sway in what they believe in. Because again, if, if you haven't come from a family of hunters or a family that has somebody that hunts or even a step farther, uh, know of know of another friend or another family that hunts and you haven't been around it at all if you think about people that live in the city nowadays they're they're really kids and so forth that that come up that have no idea about hunting don't have anybody in their family that does it no none of their friends do it so the only way they see is what they see truly on social media which is why this is this intrigues me so i'm gonna, I'm gonna let you take it from here peter what you guys did to come up with this research and, and what you guys put out Wow, Mark, that was fantastic. You have apparently done, you have read the book of your, or read the articles that we put out and you have listened. That was an awesome summation of our task ahead as hunters in the United States. So the Hunters Leadership Forum um, back in 2015, before I was hired on to the Hunters Leadership Forum, they um, did a bunch of research. They used a research company by the name of Responsive Management. They're the ones that does the majority of the research or or uh, survey projects for the outdoor industry. They're hired by most state agencies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, most NGOs, they're a they're out of Harrisburg, Virginia, and they've been around for 27 years. They know how to conduct research and they know how to ask the right questions. They they are our people. So it's not like I went to a company that just did market research for computer companies. Mm-hmm. They know our people, so they know how to ask the right questions. That that's important. I learned that when I did this hunter education course and brought it to a technology company who knew nothing about hunting and just made my job seven times harder because I was having to explain what everything meant so they know how to properly film something. Anyway, responsive management knew how to ask the question so we got a better product with less money. The Hunters Leadership Forum did this research and they wanted to know 
the American attitudes towards hunting and the animal rights movement. And it was an 18 month long uh, uh, research project that involved in-person focus groups. So it wasn't someone calling you on the phone and asking you a question. These people came to a room with the people, you know, our people were behind the glass looking at them and we had them in the majority of the uh, demographic areas, the regional demographic areas of the United States are the Northeast, Southeast, Southwest, Northwest, Midwest. And then in those focus groups, we made sure we had a good representation of the population, ethnicity, age, sex, race, the whole thing. So that when we were done with this thing, we could say that we had the, uh, obviously you can't ask everyone, so you need to take a subset of the population. So when we were done with this, this research project, we had a a representation of the attitudes of the general non-hunting American public on hunting and hunters. And it was huge amounts of you know, thousands and thousands of pages worth of data um, where they measured everyone's attitudes from hunting a squirrel all the way up to a rhino. Um, and they graded all that and put this all into one big, huge research project. And it was, there was so much information in there that that spawned a couple other research projects. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation took some of our research and tested some of it. And then we got some of that back and then wanted to retest it again because we wanted to fine tune this down to the best possible amount of information. And when my predecessors did this, they weren't looking for anything in specific. They weren't trying to 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 fine tune this. They just wanted to see what was out there and see where it would would, would lead. And then I came on the scene and started to look at this, this information and it all rolled up to a, to a great communication strategy. A great story was coming out of that research, factual research. Remember, I say this all the time. It's not my opinion. It's not the NRA's opinion. It's not responsive Manus's opinion. This came out of the research and we wanted to get this information out to the world and we wanted to benefit everybody so that the the Ducks Unlimiteds of the world, so the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, so the Alabama Fish and Game Departments, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, so that so that Hornady could have this information so that they, while they're communicating about what they do, had the right information. Because what we learned in the research, there are certain things that will turn a supporter of hunting into a non-supporter, and then someone who is a marginal line supporter of hunting into a supporter. And why do we care about that? I guess that the first, your, your, your listeners may be saying, well, what do I care mm-hmm. what non-hunters think about me? Well, you said it in your um, synopsis, is that hunters in the United States represent about 5% of the United States population. I just, I literally yesterday, I spent nine hours, I'm, I'm writing a new module for the hunter education course on the research. And I'm trying to sum it up into, you know, a 10 minute online module mm-hmm. to help new hunters persuasively talk about hunting. And, you know, I'm building a, a data chart that took me four hours of research on United States populations versus hunting populations. And there's a lot of different models out there, Mark and your audience, on how we measure how many people hunt in the United States. We don't do a good job yeah. of getting an exact number. We, we can measure hunting license sales and the 
State agencies now are working on what's called the data dashboard, which will be a computer system that that works on everybody putting in the right amount of the same information so we can measure apples to apples. But for example, the way Florida may measure a license sale versus how Virginia or Alabama measures a license sale is completely different. And they all don't wrap up to a unique one person hunter. So it's complicated of how you find the exact number of license hunters. But I have a very good friend that did that for a long time. And between the two of us, we have a very good understanding of how that model works. And there's probably about 12 million unique yearly hunters in the United States. That's it. 12 million. So you've got you got to dedupe some of the list because there's about three and a half million licenses sold of people who buy licenses in more than one state. Okay. And then there's a national survey that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does that measures people who have hunted. So there's probably about 40 million Americans that identify themselves as a hunter, but they haven't hunted in the last five years. But the, the number of replicatable license sales, individual license sales in the United States over the past 25 years is probably about 15 million to 12 million hunters. I am confident in that number. It's not, it is not 10% more or less. It's probably not even 5% more or less. It is somewhere in that number. So we're still talking only percentage points difference. Um, mm. 5.5 to 4.5% of the United States population actively hunts every year. Um, and that's, a prob- in my mind, a problematic number, um, especially when you look at what is to happen with our country. So our NGOs, which is NGOs or non-governmental organizations that are like the Ducks Unlimited and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and all those great nonprofits that work very hard to save American wildlife and wetlands and open spaces. Um, they have been engaged along with state agencies in a program for the past seven years called R3, Recruitment, Reactivation and Retention. There's been a concerted effort to make sure that we're trying to create new hunters. We want to retain them. We want to recruit them. And if they've lapsed, we want to reactivate them. So we have spent piles of money. You know, if you're in a state and you've seen one of these apprentice programs that allows you to not buy a license or go through hunter education, Mm -hmm. as long as you go out with a hunter, um, you're allowed to hunt. That is a result of what's this R3 initiative. It's trying to get people a field so that they'll love it and they'll do it again. And there's all kinds of mentoring programs and reduced license sale programs. Um, a lot of the, the NGOs have mentoring programs and uh, where you can learn to hunt programs. That's all part of the R3 initiative. Well, it's been going on pretty hardcore for seven years. And we are still sitting at about 11.5 to 12 million licensed hunters. Now, I'm not saying it didn't work. If they hadn't done their very hard working efforts, and there's a lot of dedicated professionals that live that life, um, that we owe them a lot of gratitude, we might be sitting at 7 million licensed hunters today. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's getting more, the the lifestyle that we lead, and I have a slide that shows this when I do my presentations, about the amount of the population in the United States that have moved from living in a rural area to living in an urban area. 
And then also what that's done to the landscape. When you have all this populace that exits rural and moves into urban, you're going to have to create some rural area into an urban area. Mm-hmm. So it's a double-edged sword. When we lose people from a rural area, they're, they're, their values change. We do different things in our life. Uh, hunting is not as, as accessible to us. Then we do travel sports. We get involved in our church. We get involved in social uh, other obligations. And and hunting doesn't become as, as popular in our life. Mm-hmm. And then also, when we take away the rural land, we're taking away hunting space. And probably one of the biggest threats to hunting in America is access. So when you ask a new hunter or, or a potential hunter why they don't hunt, one of the first thing they say is, I don't know where to or I don't have a place to hunt. Mm-hmm. So that has reduced the number of people that can get into this great thing that we do. Um, so back to R3, if we haven't had R3, who knows what the number we would be sitting at. So we've tried this for six years. We've tried to recruit hunters. We were hoping that about this time we'd be at 15 million licensed hunters, but we're still sitting at that, hovering at that 11.5 to 12 million licensed hunters. But the scary part and the big picture, when you're looking at the 100,000 foot level of the battlefield and you're looking down on what we're doing here and the moves and the counter moves that we're going to make in the future, you look at the United States Census website and it says that in Two, in 40 years from now, they predict that we will have 72 million more people in the United States. 40 years from now, 72 million more people in the United States. Um, that is a lot more people. And if we have not been successful in recruiting what we have now, trying hard, mm-hmm. it's probably unlikely that we're going to recruit many more going forward. So by my estimations, down the road, hunters will be 3% of the United States population. And then we are very susceptible to the court of public opinion. Um, And there has been um, what we call ballot box biology, where the antis are able to get a hunting initiative on the ballot and allow the general population to vote on what we do. Um, Now, I'm not going to go into that whole political side of it because that's not my side of the business. My goal is to make sure that we are training all new hunters and current hunters how to persuasively talk about hunting because the gem that came out of our research where we proved that on average 80% of non-hunting adults in the United States approve of hunting when given the facts Mm -hmm. about hunting. So uh, some of those people already support us. Some of those people are on the fence and the people that are on the fence are on the fence because they've read something in social media that is wrong about hunters. So what we learned in the research is that when we tell them that we are good for biodiversity, we help the ecosystem, our money funds conservation and actually helps those wildlife populations thrive, that we have in fact help all of our major big game populations in the United States rebound instead of what they think go backwards. And the big one is that we eat the meat that we harvest. Mm -hmm. We do not trophy hunt. Um, We need to redefine the word what trophy means. Um, And when they learn those things, overwhelmingly, 80% of them say, of course we should have hunting in this country.
So if we, what I call maintaining the cultural support of hunting, I'm not trying to get all these people to be hunters. I don't think we have the land to support all those people being hunters. But I want them, when given the opportunity to vote in my favor, I want them voting in my favor. The communication strategy, when you you narrow it all the way down to the book that we put out and the seminars that we did and the speeches that I give, we want to build cultural support of hunting. And and so how I look at that is a simple way is if you scroll on social media, they're they're people that do it the correct way and tell the story behind why they why they go out there. And then they're people that um, I look at them and they're like, man, they're just trying to get as many followers as they can. And I mean, I think it doesn't take a genius to realize in today's society, if you do something crazy on social media, you're going to get more followers than if you're just doing your normal everyday, everyday life. So sometimes the, the largest, the, the people that have the largest following in the outdoor industry, if you look back and say, why do they have this following and look at what they post? Well, what they're posting isn't what, isn't what 99.9% of the hunters go out and do it for. They've got a, they've got a, a big following because they did something crazy that, that, you know, it's borderline if it's ethical or not, or something like that. And that's how they grew their following. So you'll hear me talk on, on my podcast a lot about that with, with various degrees of people coming on and how they see it and, and what, what they believe in it. But I, Peter knows this. My, my stance is if you just, if you, if you post on social media, the way that you do it as an individual, not worrying about, how do I get the most likes or how do I get this thing shared? How do I get 2 million views on a video or something like that? And just go out and tell your story over the course of time, you're going to succeed. It's the people that are going out there and doing it. What I, what I call for the wrong reasons that are doing more harm than a lot of people think, because when they do one of those crazy videos to where they're doing something borderline unethical or something uh, called spearing a beer, if you, if you spear a bear or something like that and put a video out, it's not the it's not the 5% of hunters that see it. It's not the 5% of extremely hardcore anti-hunters that see it. It's the other 90% of people that see it that you know what that video may sway tens of thousands of people the wrong way. And now as you hear Peter say, if it comes down to a ballot by the ballot box issue, that's not good for us as hunters if we look to the long term. It is exactly right. And and that guy that spears a bear is not represent not res- representative of the hunters in this country, um, but yet he just represented all of us. Correct. Um, and it, and it hurts us. And that's what we learned from this research project, the data that a social media picture can sway someone for life. And we actually released a. Um, I put together a, a document based on the research of how to properly display this doesn't mean you can't display you're proud of it mm-hmm. you work hard for it you want to share this experience but there's certain ways that you display that harvest that is respectful of that animal um and your time that is way better than a bloody tongue deer hanging off the back of a four-wheeler with empty beer cans hanging around yeah. um it's not representative of the the adventure you had the the life-changing experience for some people that can happen and remember a picture is worth a million words and you can't get it back once you put it out there 
exactly. Even if you take it down, it's still there. You, you, can, you, try to, you can try to take it down and it's still there. Somebody screenshot it. Somebody did something to, to keep that. So what's been the response as, as you've gone around and kind of shared this research, Peter? Good. I, you know, really good. I was, I was doing a, the, the terminology, protecting cultural acceptance of hunting. I, at least, you know, I'm, I've been living this for three and a half years now. It's, it's my passion. That's what I dream about. It's what I work on every day. I truly believe that this is going to be a major um, a tool in our toolbox to help us keep hunting going the way we know it in this country for the next hundred years. So I'm a little bit, you know, biased to my opinion, but I, I never heard the word protecting cultural acceptance of hunting. And I was just at a conference four weeks ago in Florida where a major outdoor personality in his keynote speech used the terminology protecting cultural acceptance of hunting. Um, so it's making its way into our knowledge base there i've seen ngos use some of the information i know that there is another major ngo right now that is working on a nationwide pr campaign in support of hunting and they're using all of our research um to move forward with testing messaging um yeah i i i think it's it's helping we have a long way to go there's more people, you know, they are outdoor professionals. So are the people who work in fishing game agencies are very busy. They have a lot of problems, CWD, they got all kinds of things on their plate and there's something new being thrown at them every day. And mm -hmm. I'm chattering in their ear talking about this. So they got to try to listen to me. Um, but that it, we are making inroads. There is no doubt. Yeah, no, and this is, it may not seem like a big issue to a lot of people listening right now, but it, it is a big issue if you fast forward and look 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Um, and, and so I, everybody that's listening knows I started, when I started these, these slams, I did the Upland Slam first. And, and reason behind it was I wanted to show the conservation message of all the different species of Upland that a lot of people won't have the chance to hunt, but where, where they live, what makes it successful when their population grows and so forth like that. By the end of it, the number one concern for every species of, of Upland bird that I hunted, it didn't matter if it was a snowcock in Nevada. It didn't matter if it was ptarmigan in Alaska. It is the population is growing urban centers keep growing and habitat losses affect upland birds more than they do necessarily a white-tailed deer or, or an elk that can adapt. Like I, I think now where I live in Michigan, they're pretty much houses every, and I'm pretty rural, but there's still houses about every hundred yards where I live. And to watch how the deer have kind of transitioned to, that's just part of the life. They live in between houses now. But at the same time, I've watched the grouse numbers in the area decline rapidly because their habitat's gone. They, they need different habitat that when the population grows and houses go in and, and soccer fields go in and, and grocery stores go on the corner, they can't live in those type of areas anymore. No, it's funny. While I'm, I'm sitting on my porch, because before we got on this call, I talked about how bad my cell phone thing was. Yeah. And I, I live in one of those places where I'm out in the woods and there's a house every 300 yards. And I'm watching three white-tailed deer walk through my front yard, as you say that. Yes, they have adapted to living in amongst us. I mean, the white-tails um, the white are amazing. Just to, I mean, they, they live in city centers. 
If, they, if there's yeah. a speck of woods in there, they'll figure out how to how to get it done. Yeah, you bet. But you know, perfect example is what you said of the American landscape of the breadbasket and how we farm. And in my, I, I used to farm in high school, and in my first couple of years of college, so I, and in tune to how we use the land, and hunting on the plains, it has changed so dramatically of mechanized farming of you know, you know, we always had uh, in my lifetime had uh, pivots, but the the corners weren't farmed. But now mm-hmm. we figured out how to farm the corners, so the animals don't have the corners anymore. And then now we've taken out grid roads and fence lines, and we mechanize you know eight sections in one where there's nothing left but just growing grain yep. for our growing world population, and that affects everything. Yeah. And another, I was just thinking here, I'm, I'm researching with my dad because we're in the middle of, of starting to write a, a book on the waterfall slam in South America that, that I completed. So we're researching Argentina. So Argentina, and you may find this interesting, has 45 million people. Only three and a half million people live in rural areas. The rest live in an urban center. Because it's one of those things where we were waterfall hunting in Argentina, and by the time you get out of the city, there is... I mean, you go stretches to where you don't have houses, you don't see people, you don't see anything. So when we researched that down, it was amazing the percent of people that live in an urban area in Argentina. And the majority of countries in the world are growing the same way. The U.S. is doing the the same thing of people moving to to urban areas from rural areas. Yeah, you you bet. I use that analogy on Canada when I used to drive up there to hunt every year and explaining the massive amounts of nothing mm-hmm. you know i think canada as some of your listeners are going to question me on this but i think canada is something like twice the size of the lower 48 we have 365 million people in our population and they have something like less than 60 million people and the majority of those 60 million people live in like five major cities yep. they're, they're there's nothing on that landscape. It's incredible. I, I spend a lot of time hunting in Saskatchewan, which, as you know, is a giant province up there, and they have less than a million people total. It's unbelievable. I, it's unbe- unbelievable. And I think I live pretty rural here in Michigan, but shoot, I'm I'm a half an hour away from a a, a town that's got a million people now. Just the way that right. every, everything's grown, it's it's insane. So I know I know yeah. the the hunter leadership forum is your bread and butter at the NRA, um, but for everybody listening. The NRA is a, a, obviously a giant organization. Um, the ILO wing of it does a lot of protecting hunting rights if it makes it into the legislation part of it that, that they have to stand up and, and fight. And the, the grassroots programs that the NRA um, does that just you'd be shocked at the number of people that are involved in the grassroots program. And it's not just Second Amendment stuff. They, the, what the work that they do of introducing hunting and trying to reintroduce hunters that may have started at a younger age and try to get them re-engaged at an older age, it truly moves the needle. That's one of the ones that like the NRA doesn't get enough credit, not just for the Hunters Leadership Forum and the work that's done here, but what they do legislatively through ILA and also the grassroots program of, of actually meeting with people like that. It's truly amazing for me. Um, as we transition, we've talked about a lot of challenges that are facing facing hunters here. Peter, are there any that that we haven't talked about that that you've seen in all your work? 
you know, I think one of the, I think probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge that a new hunter faces, and, I, and I've, I'm a, I'm a mentor with an organization called the First Hunt Foundation, so I have to log my hours on the, the mentors that I take out, and they track it to, to, to help people get outside. And I'm at the stage of my life where I enjoy taking people now. I, I love cooking breakfast in the blind. It's, I fine-tuned my skills in the past five years of <laughs> the right food, and, and, and I can bring in a little grill with me, and it's fun when it's when it's 20 degrees in the morning and you have a hot breakfast in your belly that would just cook right there. So I, I love that now. I, if I never shot another duck, I'd be fine. And I love taking new people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I take a lot of people that can't go out of Northern Virginia area because they don't have a place to go and they want to go do it themselves um, after I've taken them and they can't find a place to go. Um, I, I grew up in this Northern Virginia area, born and raised a mile from the Pentagon. And I, um, I, so I have connections and I farmed in this area and I am at the point where I'm losing my spots to people buying the land that don't want hunting Mm -hmm. or, or are leasing my ground, even though I paid a lease for it, someone's coming in and doubling it Mm -hmm. to to pay a lease and good for them and good for the farmer that he can get more money. Um, but if I'm having trouble and I'm pretty connected within this hunting thing, um, I know that it's got to be unbelievably impossible for a new person. So, you know, and that's that's the coast. That's probably the same thing in California yeah. as it is all the way from New York down to Florida. Um, but so I think access is one of our major problems because we have a shrinking landscape of where people can hunt. I, I fully agree with that. I love our public lands, but then again, you look, how many hunters can the public lands sustain every year? You bet. And, and not only that, but it just gets tougher because there's so many, like I always, I always use elk hunting in Colorado as, as a good example, because it seems like a lot of people go and, and do the over-the-counter archery hunts. But when you get there, there's, it, there's so many people that you have to start hiking and getting so far away and, and you're, it's a lot more challenging and if it's somebody new that's that's getting into it, it's extremely tough for somebody new to say, man, this is awesome because I get to go and do that. It just takes out the the masses of trying to grow that 12 and a half million hunters. Um, I fully agree. Even, even here in Michigan, like trying to find access for um, people to go and hunt. If I think back when I when I started hunting with my dad in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, you could basically go to any, any farmer's door and knock on and, and they would let you go and hunt. Now it's, now yep. it's different because if, if they have hunting ground, somebody in their family's hunting it, or they're leasing it to somebody from the city, like around me, again, I'm pretty rural, but there are a lot of people from Grand Rapids, Muskegon area that will come and, and lease property in our area because they don't have anything close to them. You bet. Absolutely right. The path to success is very difficult in this. Um, once you get through all the hunter education and you gear up for, with everything and figure how to do it all legally, um, yes, it's very difficult to find a place to go. And then you'll see that, you know, you mentioned the public land, they get pretty beat up in some places and they now have the reservation system where yep. you have to apply to get drawn to hunt on a certain day that you have to plan six months in advance. Um, I know I've, I feel horrible because I put in for some of those in Virginia and I get drawn for some and then work's complicated. Yeah. Something comes up and I can't use those dates. I try to let them game department know to let someone else go but it 
it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, so you, you burn a spot because it's, you know, I had to pick it six months ago. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it's one of those things on access. It's tough. What I've, I've actually seen a, a, a little trend is the amount of waterfall hunters seems to be growing. And this is, this is me taking a step back and saying, well, why, why is that? To me, I think part of it is access because you can fit a lot of guys in a duck blind. It's also one to where, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say, let's go deer hunting and start you off there because you don't get to talk. You don't get to communicate as much. It's obviously harder to get access there. Whereas if you're going waterfall hunting, I, I compare it to kind of like golf. You can go in a group. Again, you can cook the breakfast in the morning. Um, it's not an all day thing. You can have, you can have fun and you're talking, obviously ducks are coming, you hunker down and be quiet. But as soon as they're gone again, you can, you can start joking around again. But I think part of the reason why waterfalls growing is the access part too, because if you've got a boat and you can get on some public water, it's a lot easier to do that because you, again, you've, you've limited the number of people that, that have that boat. So you got the one guy that's got the boat, but he can take four or five other guys and go out. You know, I, I've never thought about it that way, but I do agree that when you think about it, and that's one of the reasons why I do love duck hunting because it's social. Um, I can cut up with my buddies and we can have a good mm -hmm. time. Um, and, and it's it, like you said, it's a shorter duration you can be in and out of there. People can still get to work that day. It, that totally makes sense. And I've, I've, so as I, as I take new hunters, I always, I always go back and forth. Like what's the, what's the best way to get a new hunter in, into the field. I grew up with, when I, I just remember my dad, when I grew up, I grew up upland hunting. It's, it's almost impossible to take a, a new person upland hunting in Michigan just because you could walk for days and not put up a grouse. Now, if the woodcock flights here, yeah, you can put up some birds. But again, for a new hunter, those shots are extremely tough because you're in thick stuff. I've, I've done the turkey hunting. Um, truthfully, if I, can, if I can sit close enough during the turkey hunting, it gets pretty cool because it's hard for somebody not to get worked up if you got a gobbler doing it coming in and, and, and just gobbling his head off. Um, but again, it's one of those ones where communication's tougher. You can't, you can't be as loud and, and often there are a lot of mess ups and, and so forth like that, which are all part of hunting. But if you, it, I, I try to like that new hunter to have success, like you try to get them to have early success to get them to buy into it. Um, deer hunting's the same type of thing. I, I love to take somebody out to go, to go doe hunting basically. Cause around me, it's, it's a, it's a pretty well success that we'll go out in the afternoon and, and get a shot at a, at a doe. Um, but the waterfall hunting, I found it, it's fun because they get to be more of a part of it. The whitetail hunting, they to come out and sit in a stand that, that you've done all the work for, but the waterfall hunting, they get to throw the decoys out. They get to be part of putting the, putting the boat over. Nobody cares who shot the biggest duck out of the group. Nobody cares if you, if you <laughs> missed one, that that's one of the ones I love about it. And a little bit of clay work, but beforehand, and I found that's a great one to, to get hunters in. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, because I go waterfowl hunting a lot more than I go deer hunting. And you're right. There's only so many deer out there that you can put somebody on to be successful. And, you know, you can put four people in my blind. So, yep, that, that totally makes sense that that would be a quicker um, rate of entry. You know, and there's a really good program they did. I don't know how much time we have, but in North Dakota, I watch this progress when I go to my state agency meetings is that they did some research of why people don't get into waterfowl hunting. And they said, because I don't know how to identify. I don't want to make mm -hmm. a mistake because 
everyone listening is probably a hunter. You recognize that a duck on a wing is not the easiest thing to identify in the early morning hours. Um, so people said, I, I, I don't want to make a mistake. So North Dakota tried this, this new license system, and I haven't heard how it's gone, but you can decide at the beginning of the season when you buy your license whether you want to buy the regular duck hunting license where it makes you have to abide by all the rules and regulations of the take, whether it's four mallards a day, two of which may be hens, one right. pintail, two wood ducks, whatever it is, they're allowed to shoot three of any ducks per day. Three. Oh, wow. So it doesn't matter. And um, it's an interesting concept that allows people who don't have someone to take them hunting and learn it, they can go out and waterfowl hunt with confidence. They can just shoot three ducks a day any duck um so i'm interesting to see i think last year was the first year they tried it so soon i'll probably hear some research of how that went but it's an interesting concept that is get more people in the field interesting concept and i hadn't i hadn't thought about the identification part which is which which is funny because i just got done hunting argentina and peru for the first time so it was the first time i'd ever seen any of those ducks right. so the first day you go out there and yeah you've seen pictures of them but until you see them fly you hear how they how they sound the way that they come into decoys, like there's so many things that you can pick up in the field. And then once you see it a little bit, you'll, you'll be able to identify, but I never thought about that here in, here in the States of going out and not, not being able to identify what duck is what, when it comes in that first 15, 20 minutes of the morning. That's a, that's an interesting. Yep. I, didn't, I didn't thought about that. It'd be interesting yep. to see how that, yep. that program in North Dakota does. I, I like it because North Dakota did something that was progressive and said, Hey, this is a challenge. What can we do to, to work around it and give it a solution just to take that as, as one less, one less um, step to entry. You bet. Yep. And that's all part of the R3 programs, trying to get more people to give it a shot. That's great. That's great. Well, Peter, I can say every time I talk to you, I, I learn, I've got another page of notes here of stuff that, that I'll put in my memory bank and, and hopefully be able to use later on down the road. Well, thank you you do for the nra and the hunters leadership forum you're a great supporter um personally i i know my <laughs> i got my email the other day from wyoming fish and game that said it's time to renew your tags uh -huh. and you your service does my tags so i really appreciate that help that i'm not having to stay on top of all that stuff <laughs> hopefully we make it hopefully we make it pretty easy for you <laughs> you <d> <laughs> well perfect have a great day peter hey thanks a lot take it easy Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.